You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On this 4th of July episode of the Root Simple Podcast, Will Wallace of the Weekend Homestead returns to talk about beekeeping, fireworks, solar power, and extending Wi-Fi. Before we get to the interview, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Robert G., Anne F., Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Scott G., Kellyan, Stephanie L., Erica R., Kelton M., Kyle P., Nicholas H., David and Sandy S., Eric of Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Johnny S., Dutch Girl, Mary H., Stephen T., Brad and Stacy, and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support this podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. Will runs the popular Weekend Homestead channel on YouTube, where he makes videos about cabin life, DIY projects, making maple syrup, hunting, fishing, camping, and family fun. And now, my conversation with Will Wallace. How are things out there, Will? Where you are? Where are you right now, actually? I'm actually in Wisconsin right now. Oh, Wisconsin. Are you at the at the camp cabin compound, or...? I am, actually. Uh, the week before the 4th of July, I tend to take it off from work and spend some time up at the property, so it's uh, it's been nice. Cool. And uh, you very nicely reached out to me to, to uh, say you'd like to come on the podcast to talk about a couple of things. Uh, we should say there was a really great podcast you did with Eric of Garden Fork about uh, solar power, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, but uh, maybe we'll start with um, beekeeping, because you just got into beekeeping, and you did it for, as you said, the cost of a bee suit and a cup of coffee. Um, can you say something about how you uh, how you got into beekeeping without busting the bank? Sure. Um, a lot of people you know, do a lot of reading online. They do a lot of watching YouTube videos, getting involved with different folks. And through that, I've listened to a couple podcasts, yours and a couple other folks, talk about beekeeping. And talking about getting involved with clubs and groups. And I, I happened to be listening to the podcast, driving past a farm field, and there's a gentleman who had some bees out there. And I knew who that person was. So I called him one day and I said, hey, you have bees out there. Where did, Do you guys do your own beekeeping and all that? And he said, no, there's a guy who does it. Here's his number. So I called this gentleman up, and it's Dave, the bee guy, and talked to him on the phone. And I said, hey, I'd like to sit down with you at some point, have a cup of coffee, and just ask you some questions about beekeeping because I'm interested. So we picked a date, sat down, and, and started talking. And through the conversation, came to find out that he's looking for some help to kind of get some things done around his beehives. He's probably got about 100 to 150 hives that he maintains for a number of farmers. But it's an operation that's grown bigger than what he can handle. And through our conversation, he basically said, why don't you come along and help and you can get some field knowledge of what it's like to work with bees and, and everything else. And through this process, basically, I've built a relationship with this person to the point where, you know, we go and we'll do a cutout or we'll go do uh, catch a swarm or, or, you know, go on some of his calls. So I get great firsthand knowledge of beekeeping from one of the gentlemen who's an expert and all it took was me giving him a call buying him a cup of coffee and sitting down and talking with him and basically at the end of our conversation at the cup of coffee he said why don't you buy yourself a bee suit here's the one i recommend and next week once you know once a week we'll go out and do these different things and through that i've gotten equipment i've gotten different things where he's like oh i'm decommissioning this here you can add this to your you know your bee farm or your your bee collection. So, and slowly but surely, I've been kind of adding to my knowledge, 
and getting first-hand experience, helping him out, and in the process, getting into the hobby without really breaking the bank. That sounds great. What sort of things have you learned? Because it sounds like you're doing two things here, which is one, tending the bees, and the other is doing um, uh, hive uh, moves and removals and things like that. So what, what sort of things have you learned? I, I, you know, just the process of how exponential beekeeping can get very quickly for a person in the sense of, you know, he started out in the beginning of the season with, let's say, 20 hives or whatever it is, but because of splits and because of um, getting the calls for swarms and things like that, being one of the only individuals in a small town that's into beekeeping, his phone rings a lot. And there's a lot of need out there for folks to, you know, help and be part of this. So probably the biggest thing I learned was the amount of need in the springtime for, you know, issues with swarms or cutouts. There was a cabin that had uh, some bees that took up residency in the wall and, you know, the people weren't there all the time. So the bees were undisturbed. They finally came up for a weekend and, and found this scenario. The other thing I've learned is there's a lot of calls for people who don't understand what's necessarily in their wall or in their eaves or in their yard. So a lot of people are like, oh, they're bees. And then you go out and it's a paper wasp nest or oh, it's yes. like, you know, a hornet's nest in the ground and things like that. And you know, that's a little bit outside of what he deals with, but there's a lot of those types of calls, which was pretty surprising. I didn't think there was, but for every one or two bee calls, there's probably three or four calls that are not bees. Oh, yeah. People do not know, which is a little depressing, actually. <laughs> but um, that's actually how I got started, too, was, doing, was helping someone do cutouts. Uh, but for, for those of those uh, listening to this who don't know what a cutout is, maybe you should describe what that is and, and how you do that. Now, I'm going to come at this with a complete novice. I have never done one myself, but I've helped with one. Basically, what happens is, uh, let's say bees will take up residency in, um, in our section, it was a, a part of a wall of a shed. And what we did was we removed the paneling from the outside of the shed, which basically exposed the, the hive. And then very slowly and methodically, we've, we took the comb out and the best we could put it back into frames and then put it into boxes with the goal of finding the queen and then moving the queen into the boxes. And basically that was kind of the end of the process. Then over a period of time, the bees naturally kind of moved their way towards the boxes and out of the wall. And eventually, you know, they were all out of the wall. We cleaned up a little bit and, and took the bees away. And, you know, the homeowner was happy they were out of the wall and we were happy we didn't just annihilate them all, you know, and kill them like a lot of people do. So, you know, that's that's kind of what a cutout is, to, to, from my experience, I guess. Yeah, and I'm going to editorialize and say that's the right way to do it, uh, because there are a lot of people who, as you mentioned, will just trash the comb and say that they're moving the bees and they're actually not. Uh, but the other thing I'll say is this is a great way to get free bees, too. So I'm wondering if you have, do you have your own hives yet, or uh, are you planning um, on doing that? No. So at this point, I, I expect that I will have hives by probably the next week or two. Um, at this point, one of the things we're working on is actually building. So besides beekeeping, one of the other things I've learned is there's a lot of things that you do that aren't necessarily opening a hive, like building frames, building boxes, fixing equipment, um, those types of things. So like he's got an extractor that he was working on the other day and I was helping him you know, a commercial extractor where you can put 40 or 50 frames in it and it does its thing. Well, we had to do some work on that. So I've been doing a lot of that type of work, work in the wood shop, building frames, which I've never done. He shows me how to do it. And then we go through and we, we do a bunch of them and it helps out because then the next time we go out, he's got stuff to work with. Um, so my theory is, is that 
we're going to get into a couple more swarms, hopefully here. Um, he said, as we get closer to fall, you know, it, it tends to happen again. There's a, a big push for him. So he said, we'll probably pick something up here in July or August. And he doesn't have any other, um, farms to place them at. So he's like, yeah, we'll start putting them out at your property so you can start working with them and learning. Yeah. And I'll editorialize again. Uh, I'm assuming he's using unassembled boxes and frames, which is another way to save a lot of money. I know where I am here, I can go to the local bee shop and get unassembled equipment. And once you know how to assemble it, which isn't that hard to do, you save a whole lot of money because I think it's like $20 a box or something unassembled, whereas opposed to a lot more assembled. Well, I actually went to one of the big box stores when I was first getting interested in this, and I think some of the kits are like two hundred or two hundred and fifty dollars in the store to buy it. And what we're working with is is just uh, reclaimed wood that he has that we're cutting down into uh, the different okay. sizes. And you know, you run them through the table saw. Right. You know, you run twenty boards through the table saw, and then you get the chop saw and you cut each one, and then you're brad nailing them all together and things like that. So we're building from scratch. We're not even buying from kits. He's he's uh, gone okay. one step further where he's you know, repurposing different materials and things like that. And we're learning how to do that too. Oh, so okay. that's a, a kind of a cool thing to learn too. I, I never had wood shop when I was in school. So I'm learning all that at the same time. I've thought about that too. And I was just getting a little, little nerdy here, but is he doing box joints on the corners or is he just sort of making boxes, simple boxes? They're just simple boxes oh, at this okay. point. He has some fancier ones, but at this point, because of the number of hives that he has, he's like, we got to get this done. We could make it super fancy and nice and things like that. He's like, right. let's get it. So it's functional. It's, it's kind of at least the version that I'm getting. Right. That is true. If you have a table saw, you can, you can do it. And I do recommend a table saw, by the way, I finally got one last year and it's been a, it's been really handy around the house. I have to say that. My, uh, my buddy Todd, who helps me do a lot of construction stuff, just a tidbit on the, on the table saw. When you buy a table saw, buy a nice blade for it right away. The mm. blade actually makes all the difference in like a chop saw. I got a regular chop saw and then Todd brought a blade and he put it on there and we used it. And it was amazing. The difference to buy an aftermarket blade and put it in there and, and how well the, the equipment works after you do that. Yeah, that is a great tip. Anything else on beekeeping you want to say? You know, it's, 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 it's been great. You know, it's, it's been an education. You can learn a lot from books. You can learn a lot from the internet but standing there and taking a breath and having be part of the experience and seeing it, being involved with it and understanding it and seeing it with your own eyes is such an education. I, I thought I knew a lot about beekeeping from the stuff I've read, the stuff I've heard, the stuff that I've watched videos on, but actually going and doing it makes all the difference. And I can't recommend enough for somebody to get involved or even just make a simple phone call and say, hey, can I come help you out at no charge to you? I'll learn in the process and you get free labor. And a lot of people are really open to that idea. Yeah, I, 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 do, a, I do some cutouts and things like that during the year, and I would definitely be open to help for sure because it, it's hard work. There's some lifting, there's some cutting and stuff like that, and it's, it's always handy to have a, another person on hand. Well, in small markets too, like in, in the area where we are, up where our cabin is, which is where uh, I do this, there's not a lot of people who are doing this. I mean, in, in the met metropolitan, like Los Angeles, New York, or some of the bigger cities and things like that, I'm guessing there's a lot of people who are into beekeeping and the clubs are really big. In the area where we are, the club is really two guys, you know, and, and they're just kind of into it. You know, that's, that's kind of how it is. So those are the folks that are really looking for help. So if you live in a smaller community, 
I actually would think it would be easier to get involved with it because those people need people to help. Well, surprisingly, there's fewer here than you'd think. And I guarantee if you get into it, your phone will start ringing with people who need help, getting them out of walls and things like that. That's what That was the case for me. So uh, it's definitely a, it's a great idea. All right. Um, so there's a couple other topics we wanted to touch on. One is people should know you are a, a fireworks expert, and we're coming up on the 4th of July. Uh, tell us what you're working on in terms of the 4th of July and uh, fireworks right now. So, yeah, everybody goes to the park in the municipalities, and they, they sit out and they watch these great shows and things like that. And a guy like myself is out working out in the sun all day, kind of getting it ready. But there's a lot of prep work that goes into actually doing a show like today as example i had two calls with the sponsor for the show that i'm doing on the fourth of july just organizing things like okay what type of music are we going to use are we using music okay who's going to work with the police to set up security and things like that so a lot of planning goes into these types of events you know fireworks are inherently dangerous to be honest with you and the industry has done a really good job in the commercial sense of making it as safe as possible firework accidents are all-time low um, you know, the shows are getting much bigger, they're getting more exciting, and they're doing it safely because of the planning. So for a person like myself, the last two weeks have been a lot of phone calls and planning and making sure that the right security people are in place and the right trucking people are in place and all the different pieces. So the couple of weeks before the 4th of July, guys like myself, independent contractors and pyro companies are spending a lot of time getting ready to make sure it's the best experience for people on the 4th. So what sort of things do you, I, 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 I remember like tubes and things like that and electronics. Is that kind of how, how the, the professional systems work? Yeah. Um, you know, in some rural areas, I'm going to, I'm going to say this in the beginning, in some rural areas, they still do it the old fashioned way with a road flare lighting fuses by hand. For the most part, most major shows and big shows out there are all done electronically. So a truck shows up with a bunch of equipment that has a bunch of tubes in it. They're all different sizes. They're called mortars. And basically, um, they range anywhere from as small as three inches in diameter to as big as 16 inches in diameter. And you set them up in a certain way, you put the shells in, and then there's these little electronic matches that connect into the fuse that run back to a box. And then that box has a wire that runs back to a control panel. And when an operator like myself presses the button on the control panel, it sends a little electric signal out lights the fuse, the shell goes in the air, and it's added a layer of safety by keeping all the people away from it. Well, because it's electronic, you can hook it up to a computer and everything can be fired automatically. You can fire it manually and run the switches, all different types. And it's, yeah, so is there like a, can you just program the whole thing ahead of time and run it with a computer too? Is that, are there people that do that? Yep, actually this year, so Previous years, my show had been manual, and then the city got an additional budget increase, and they changed the show. And actually, this year, we're going to time it to music. So they load a show in a computer and do a simulation of what it would look like in the computer and time it to the music and get it all perfect. Then that information is loaded into a computer console. It basically looks like a, if you remember what a DJ console looks like or something like that, that's kind of what it looks like. And what happens is the signal from the music comes into there, the, the computer notices it, and they sync up with each other. And then the computer knows to fire certain shells at a certain rate, and they'll run the whole thing automatic. So for myself, last year, I'd had to flip a bunch of switches to get the show to go. This year, I just press one button, 
have it synchronize up, and away it goes. Now, of course, out here in the West, uh, fireworks are controversial because of fires, uh, and it's a it's actually a very hot topic on the social media website next door in my own neighborhood. Uh, because even though it's illegal here, it's, it's widely ignored. There's scared animals, all kinds of stuff. It's, it's a, a fraught issue here. Um, I, I don't know what you'd say about that. Maybe go to a professional show and not do it at home. I, I don't know what you would have to say about that. I will admit that when I was younger, I was the guy who would light fireworks off in his driveway and scare the neighbor's dog and, <laughs> and do all that stuff. I'll be honest, right up front, I was that guy. I have changed over the years. Now I have kids and I've, I've seen and been involved in the fireworks industry. Probably the best thing to do is take the family, go to the park with a uh, picnic basket and um, sit down and, and have, make a day of it and then enjoy the show, get in your car and head home. You know, a lot of people will get simple things like sparklers and things like that. It's when you get into a little bit more of the novelty stuff and get into the more serious stuff where people get injured, where there's problems, there's issues with neighbors and things like that. You know, there's a time and a place for those types of things. And there's probably reasons why there's legislation in California. I know there was a wildfire that was started with fireworks a couple of years ago and it caused serious damage. You know, it's, I'm not going to tell people not to do it, but at the same point in time, you have to be respectful of your neighbors just because you want to have fun one day with, you know, something inherently dangerous. You still have to live with those people 364 other days of the year. So <laughs> you think about that before you go and light the big ones off in your front yard. People do light the big ones off here. I mean, they have the, the professional kind out on the streets. It's, it's nuts, actually. I mean, if you go up, a friend of mine has a, a, a hilltop like, behind his house, and sometimes we go up there, and it's just, it's, it's crazy here. It's, yep. That, that's one thing about the fireworks industry is a lot of people talk about it as being dangerous. But if you look at it, I think the last major accident that happened on a professional level was in 2006. Other than that, it's been very low casualty or low injury rates. The biggest area where injuries are is in um, using consumer products incorrectly. In fact, there was actually a gentleman in North Dakota last year who died um, because he was uh, lighting something off. He didn't think it went, and he put his head over the top of it and looked down in there, and it went off, and, and that was it. And, you know, it's just those types of things I would leave to the professionals. I, 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 I can't stress that enough. I mean, I used to be the one having the fun and things like that, but now looking back, there's probably some times where I had questionable judgment. <laughs> Haven't we all had questionable judgment? Anyways, um, moving on to, uh, let's get to the solar project, because you were, you were on uh, Eric of Garden Fork's podcast, talked at length about a uh, kind of a, a, a small system that you set up uh, in your rural property, why don't you describe that system, and then let's talk about why why it's so expensive to have someone else do it. So, what 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 did you set up? Let's set the sure. The first thing was I have uh, two parts of my property. I have the lower part, which is on the grid and and has water, and we have a septic and electric and things like that. And then we have a uh, part of the property that's about a, a quarter mile to a half mile back in the woods that has a pole barn and there's a little cabin and that's where our apple orchard is and it's off the grid. And for us, we thought at one point in time of bringing power out there, but the power company wanted $18,000 to bring electrical in, which was outrageous. We wanted to just solve a simple problem, which was our pole barn had no lights in it. So, you know, in rural Wisconsin in the fall, it gets dark at six o'clock. So, you know, it's dark in there. There's no lights and you're working by flashlight. So we thought, 
is there a way we could build a simple system that would give us some lights, maybe allow us to charge some batteries, you know, charge your cell phone, you know, those types of things. And I started researching it. I instantly got overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there. It's just amazing the amount of opinions because no two solar panel systems are the same. They're all different. My system acts one way. If you take it to Texas, it'll act differently. If you take it up to Canada, it'll act differently because everybody's geographically located in different spots. And then people's needs are completely different. So it was pretty overwhelming. But then we kind of got into it and started looking and saying, what would be the simplest thing we could do? So that's how we started. And so what did you do? Uh, first thing we did was we figured out exactly what we wanted to do, which was I wanted to run some lights and I wanted to run some simple outlets. So we went around and we figured out, okay, an LED light bulb is eight watts of power. So we added up some LED light bulbs and we added up, you know, what the chargers would be to figure out how much power we're using. And then once you get to that point, it's how much power are you making and how much power are you storing? And that's all there really is to a solar panel system. You know, the battery stores the power, the solar panel makes it, and the inverter converts the power from the battery to the common electrical power that you'd use in your house every day. So you went into depth in this on on Eric's podcast, but this is what, I I mean, I'm just not a math person, so it it confused me a little bit. And I think we're talking about Ohm's Law here, right? Watts and and so forth and storage. And maybe at the risk of repeating a little bit of what you talked about on Eric's podcast, um, how do you go about figuring out the size of the panel you need and how many batteries and that kind of thing using the example of this small system that you put together. Sure. Um, we're going to use a very simple example of we're going to power two light bulbs and how long do we want to power those light bulbs for? Let's, let's power them for five hours, right? So now we know how much we're using. So those light bulbs, let's say are 10 Watts a piece. So that's what they are requiring when they run. And if you ever looked at light bulbs or anything in your house, it has a amount of power that it uses, or you can get a little meter to test that, which is a really cool project all of its own. But those light bulbs at 10 Watts a piece would be, um, using 10 Watts of power or 20 Watts total. If you run them for five hours, you take five times 20, which would be, a, so you're using in that five hour period, you're using a hundred Watts of power, right? Follow right. me so far. Mm -hmm. So now, now we know how much we're using. So then the next question you have to ask yourself is how much do I need to store? Like for myself, I looked at it as, um, I'm up there for three days. I want to be able to have power for three days, regardless of what's happening in the world. So if the battery is completely charged and I turn on the light and I'm going to use it for five hours a day, I want to have three days worth. So now we look at it and go, okay, we have a hundred Watts that we're using every day and I want to do it for three days. So I take three times 100 and that gives me 300 Watts, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how much power I want to store. So then I look at batteries and I look at the specifications of batteries and I find a battery that stores that amount of power. Now on the safe side, I never wanted to use more than 50% of the battery just to keep the battery around longer. So I bought a battery that would hold 600 Watts of power. So when it's fully charged, I can turn it on, run it for three days at five hours a time, and I will be at 50% battery at the end of that, give or take. I mean, we're talking in generalities here. So now I've got how much I'm using, how much I'm storing, and then the last piece, which is a simple one, which is I need to recharge that battery. One way I can do it is hook it up to a generator, but I wanted to use solar. 
So then the next piece of the equation that I look at is I'm going to put a solar panel on my roof. And if I know that I want to bring that battery up to charge again, how much sun do I get? Well, if you're in Texas or California, you'd probably get eight hours of sun. I'm in Wisconsin, as close to Canada as you could probably get. And, you know, I get maybe three or four hours of sun every day. That's, that's usable. So I looked at it and went, well, if I want to recharge my battery in a day, how much am I using? I'm using 300 watts. So I bought a 100-watt solar panel, and I knew that it would see sun for, let's say, three hours a day because it makes the math work out good. So I'm producing 300 watts of power. Well, I know I'm using 300 watts of power. So I use up power, and the panel will automatically recharge the battery. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And you go ahead. Now there's, probably, now there's probably somebody screaming at the radio going, well, no, there's all these other things you have to look at. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. There's also amps and things like that that we have to put into the equation. But the simple fact is how much are you using, how much are you storing, and how quickly and how often do you want it recharged? Right. And based, based on, the, let's say we said five days, well, now I need two batteries. Let's say I wanted it recharged in half a day. Now I need two panels. You know, let's say I wanted to run four batteries. Well, now I need more or four light bulbs. Now I need four batteries. And now I need like, it, it grows on itself the more you use. So that's the basics of it. Right. And what I liked about your discussion with Eric is the system you set up is basically some lights and some uh, chargers for tools, which is the kind of thing that you'd have in an outbuilding. You're in a rural area, but, you know, I've got a shed here, too, so it's the kind of thing like it would make sense in a shed, even in an urban area, if you don't want to run power to it. Um, now, I think, and I'll link to this in the show notes, but I think you had some specific part recommendations, uh, some, some stuff from Amazon. Is that correct? Are you happy with the, the parts that you got to put this system together? And would you recommend that kind of set of, of, of um, batteries and panels if someone wanted to put together a simple system like this? Yeah, we've been running the system for about 30 days now. I made a slight modification to it to add a little bit of safety and convenience into it. I added a switch and some fuses and things like that. But you know, from the initial system, all said and done, we spent $630, which to a lot of people, they're like, that's that's significant amount of money. But in comparison to what you see in the market today for solar and like with the power company, they wanted to charge me $18,000 so I could run a couple of lights and charge a couple of things in the pole barn. I felt $600 was a pretty good value. Okay. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that. Why $18,000? Who's, who's that? The power company or an electrician? What are we talking about here? Sure. Good question. Oh, I'm that, sorry. That was running the line in, right? But I, I, right. I that's yep. what you said earlier. I, but what about just having some solar? person come? Why is that so expensive? Well, it all comes back to what you're running. So as you're sitting in your room right now, listening to this podcast, or you know, I guess if you're in your car, this probably isn't going to work out, but think about your house for a second and look at your stove, look at your microwave, look at the lights on your ceiling and so on. All of those things draw power. So the reason why some of the residential systems get very expensive very quickly are things like coffee pots and electric stoves, air conditioners, table saws, chop saws, microwaves, all of those things use a lot of power. So if you wanted to figure out how to do solar for yourself in your home, get on Excel spreadsheet or a notepad and start writing down all of the things that you have in your house that you use and figure out how much they're using and how often you use it. That then will be the equivalent of us figuring out the two light bulb scenario. 
Then from there, you can figure out, well, how many days of power do I need to store? Well, that just solved how many batteries you're going to need. And then you think, okay, I need to recharge this. How many panels do I need? When you start adding in things like microwaves, to give you an example, a LED light bulb uses 10 watts of power. A table saw running uses 1,000 watts of power. Mm -hmm. So that's why all of a sudden people's residential systems get really big because they put air conditioners in there or they put coffee pots or, you know, the big offenders is what I call it. I'm not making coffee in my barn. So that's one of the things on why I can get away with a smaller system. And a lot of people can get away with a smaller system if you don't have an air conditioner, if you don't have a stove, if you don't have those types of things. It works really, the system I came up with works really good for outbuildings. And before, actually, before we got started talking, you, uh, excuse me, I'm going to say that again. Before we started recording, uh, you mentioned the Instapot, and I was a little surprised. How much power does the Instapot use? Yeah, so one question a lot of people have asked and is, well, can I use these things on, on you know, an off-grid scenario? And the Instapot, which was shocking to me, uses 1,000 watts which is the equivalent of a table saw. So, you know, you, you get this thing out and um, you fire it up. And just to put it on simmer mode, there's this, there's this little device that I talked about. I talked about it on Eric's show, and I, I can give you the link to it also for you to put in the show notes, called a kilowatt. And what mm -hmm. a kilowatt is is a really cool product that allows you to figure out how much power a certain device is using. So I started going around the house and going, well, how much power does my sous vide machine use? Or how much power does my Instapot or my Crock-Pot or that coffee pot or all these convenience items that we have in our homes. And I was surprised. I mean, the Instapot, which I love my Instapot. I'm not going to say that I'm here to poo-poo the Instapot because I, I even have videos about doing Instapot stuff. Mm -hmm. But I was shocked to see that at the lowest setting simmer, it's using 1,000 watts. Wow. So if you, have that, if you have that thing running for a couple of hours, all of a sudden you have a scenario where you know, you're using a significant amount of power in exchange for the convenience of it. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll say something here about the kilowatt. Uh, I, I think there's other places in, in the U.S. too that are like this, where you can actually check one out from the local library, which is kind of nice to know. At least the L.A. library has them. You can check out for a, a few days to check your 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 power. Um, any any other apply? I mean, it's it's funny. You start thinking backwards like this, and then you you really start thinking of what's drawing power in the house. Uh, any other uh, appliances that that, uh, that you've thought about in terms of how much power they use, and um, also any other future solar plans? Sure. Um, items like a lot of people, I don't want to say, kind of get concerned about microwaves, but microwaves do use a lot of power, but you don't tend to run your microwave for three hours you run it for 30 seconds or a minute or something like that so mm -hmm. it's it's something that's very short versus like my sous vide so I, if you guys know what a sous vide is you put i have one too yeah but we should cooking yeah, yeah go cooking ahead. under vacuum right right well i hook that up and i'll run it for you know five six hours on right. something in there and it's drawing you know mine at the lowest setting will draw 600 watts mm. all the way up to as high as 1200 watts so it's doing the equivalent of what a microwave would, but it's doing it over a six-hour period. Yeah. So it's using a significant amount of power. So you uh, can't really use that in an off-grid scenario. Right, right. Um, as an aside here, I'm kind of a sous vide fan, actually. What do you use yours for? Uh, for us, so we, we come up on the weekend. We want to go out and do projects or spend time with the kids. 
works really well for us to, let's say at 10 in the morning, put something in there, get it set up to, you know, get some pork chops ready or whatever it is and set it for a certain time and know that we're going to be back to the house, let's say at six o'clock, set it, forget it, let it run. And we go off and have our fun and whatever. Then we come back and it's as easy as just browning stuff on the grill, which, you know, saves a lot of time when you're kind of at your vacation or your weekend place is kind of how I describe it. Yeah, it's, it's quite delicious though. I, uh, now thinking about just turning the table saw and leaving it on, <laughs> but anyway, it, 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 a lot of people don't think about it that way. But you know, <laughs> our, my air compressor draws about twelve hundred watts. Now, granted, it only runs for fifteen minutes, but imagine having it run for six hours. You know, that's yeah. These convenience items in our houses, I'm not here to say don't have them, but also know that that convenience is coming at a cost, and that's going to be using a lot of power. So people are like, look at all the LED light bulbs, and look at all these things that we're doing. I'm like, yeah, but look at the Instapot that's burning up all this power that you run, you know, yeah. three or four times a week. Right, right. Uh, well, another project you've got going is running uh, Wi-Fi out to your uh, the distant regions of your uh, compound out there in Wisconsin. Um, tell me about what, what you want to do there and how you're thinking of uh, going about that. So uh, it's, it's interesting because you and I were talking about this offline, and now I'm interested in a lot of the stuff that you were talking about. But again, it's coming up with a solution for a simple problem, which is, we could bring internet up to our off-grid property, but the phone company and the internet companies, it's expensive to do that. So I was thinking, well, if I have internet at the house, could I bring it up to the property so that I could run, let's say, a camera system so I can see what's going on at the property when I'm not there or some type of security things and those types. And I've been looking into these small microwave systems where you put an antenna up on a pole and then you put an antenna up on a pole and you broadcast them to each other and then it kind of extends your Wi-Fi range. Not like a simple Wi-Fi extender where it only extends it outside your house just a little bit. We're talking, you know, some of these systems will send it up to, you know, a half a mile to a mile away, which would work perfect for us. Problem I'm running into is, is that the leaves on the trees are really interfering with the system. So in the mm -hmm. wintertime, it works really well. And then in the summertime, it doesn't work at all. You're going to have to build two tall towers then, which you've already built a tower, right? So, I did. I, I think I'd have to build it much, much taller, and I think there's probably some permits I'd have to get for that. Hey, what is that 150-foot uh, building there? Oh, it's just a lookout tower. <laughs> Yeah, there's. A, I was telling you offline about, uh, it's called Broadband Hamnet, because there's this weird quirk in the law where uh, the ham radio frequencies overlap with the Wi-Fi frequencies, meaning that if you have a ham radio license, you can take a Wi-Fi router and boost the crap out of the power. And so there's some, some ham folks who are experimenting with this, setting up kind of like a, an alternative to the Internet, which is sort of interesting. But uh, there's also people that have done uh, Wi-Fi antennas out of Pringle cans. I don't know if you've seen that. So that's, a, that's kind of a funny little hack. And basically just taking like old Linksys routers and boosting the crap out of the power and hooking up a Pringles can to it. It's something I've wanted to try, but I'm not not such the electronics expert. But um, anyways, I, so that's, that's you're uh, rambling, but that's that's uh, that's the next project online for you. Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. It, it's it's one of those pieces where now that we have power up there, could I use that power for things when we're not on the property to you know add security, safety, right. or convenience? So that's just things we're thinking about, and it's I actually 
quite honestly enjoy researching the projects just as much as doing the project. So kind of learning about a new technology or learning about a new thing and then figuring out a way to apply it to our lives to improve things or to change things or to fix things is, is kind of something I really enjoy. Have you had some security issues up there? Um, a number of years ago, there was a rash of kids who were breaking in and, you know, stealing booze and oh, yeah. vandalizing and that kind of stuff. Um, there was a number of folks that had their properties hit, but for the most part, it's, it's fairly secure and safe. The, the neighbors all watch out for their stuff and there's always somebody around. So that's kind of handy. You know, the small town, you know, everybody knows what you're doing, whatever, you know, is kind of nice to have. Right. So what, what are you working on for your YouTube channel right now? Well, we just finished up, um, the modifications we did to the solar project and probably one of the biggest ones that you'll probably see from us in the next couple of weeks is really lining up uh, small appliances and figuring out how much power they're using we've got a couple building projects and things like that that we're wrapping up but uh that that's that's probably one of the biggest items is the which type of items can you use when you're camping because the things that we're talking about for off-grid apply to people who go camping, too. I know people who have RVs that have sent me notes that said, hey, can I use my uh, Instapot in my RV on a solar panel system? Yeah, probably you know, not. Yeah. Yeah. So it's – well, you could. It's just you have to – it'll be expensive. Uh, back to the solar panel. Actually, a few more questions about that. A little out of order here. But um, what do you sure. think about um, – I'm going to name names here. Harbor Freight has a bunch of like cheap solar stuff. Have you investigated that at all? I have actually. Eric and I talk about uh, Eric from Garden Fork, and I talk about Harbor Freight all the time. It's our it's our little uh, it's a it's a great place to go to shop and, and find things. The solar stuff that they have there is very good to solve very simple problems. In the sense of like you're going camping and you want something to charge uh, batteries so that you have some lights and uh, you know something to recharge your phone when you're camping somewhere. They've got some cool fold out ones. I've seen those. Some of their bigger solar stuff is not that bad. I mean, I know that there's some people who are probably, again, shouting at the radio saying, yeah. oh, you have to buy this brand or you have to buy this. Mm -hmm. You do, but for most folks, they're looking for a simple solution. And some of the things that Harbor Freight is selling, I don't know anything about the inverters and stuff they're selling, but the panels all have really good reviews. I know a couple of people who have them, and they work really well, and they're inexpensive. So that's that hits a lot of hot buttons for folks. Right now, some people might be wondering if you can run a laptop with a solar panel. How does that work? Do you need anything different to, to run computer equipment? Um, yeah, actually, that's a, a really good point. Um, so inverters, so that's the piece that turns the 12-volt power to 110. Um, there's two different types. There's a, something called a pure sine wave inverter, which basically produces the same result power constantly, um, which is really good for computers. And then you have a standard inverter like what I have that we put in the pole barn where it's just producing, I don't want to say dirty power, but it's not as consistent. Mm -hmm. So the folks who are running computers and things like that, you might want to buy a, a little bit more expensive inverter. We bought a $66 one. I think Eric and I were talking about uh, a sine wave inverter that we had found that we did some research on that was like $140. And then you'd be able to do the same thing I'm doing in the barn, but then it would be safe for things like computer equipment. Um, and one last off-the-wall question, which is, I've got this 54-watt solar panel laying around not being used. Uh, any, any ideas what I might be able to use that for? The thing I would think about is, is there a small area on the property where I could use some extra lights? Because 54-watt solar panel, that's a, it's about half the size of the panel that I have. But let's say if you wanted to run, let's say you had a, a shed in the backyard 
you could put it on the roof, get a small battery, get a small inverter, and add two light bulbs inside of that shed. So the times when you're out there for that hour, you flip on the light and stuff. You don't have to run wire underground. You know, you could you could do that. Um, I know some people have those little libraries. I don't know if you've seen that before. Oh, yeah. have the library mm-hmm. in their yard, and they put a little light inside of that. Some people use them for security systems where you put a little panel out with a little battery, and then you have the motion light that just turns on and off where it's on for a short period of time and then off for a short period of time. I think you could easily come up with some things that would you could drive with that uh, small solar panel. There's a lot of neat projects. I mean, something for the garden, something for the bees, whatever. I mean. Well, anything else you want to say before you get back to beekeeping and wiring up a Wi-Fi system? <laughs> no, I think uh, I hope everybody has a safe and happy uh, 4th of July, and thank you for having me on the show today. Thanks, Will. That was Will Wallace. You can find his YouTube channel by searching for The Weekend Homestead on YouTube. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcast automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. Thank you again to our many supporters. Our closing theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.